You are now entering phase two of the double real cinematic universe. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine that provides guilt-free gratification of the needs of film nerds everywhere. We're back again with our final episode of 2020, continuing our mission to provide lots of top quality content to help you through what has undoubtedly been a shit year. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Uh, my name is also James Adamson. I'm very happy to be here. I am also an ordinary member of the public, but in terms of geekiness, I'm more of a Padawan, and my father here is the Jedi Master. Nice Star Wars reference there. Star Wars remain to go on. Each month, we aim to bring you a range of features from the film world, split into two reels for those of you who like to take an intermission between installments of film content. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Real Podcast, no gaps, and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 8. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds, some film-related news and what we watched this month. Then we have our classic feature from our list of great films, we've meaning to watch instead of Bond repeats on ITV4. This month I'll be finally getting around to seeing the Blues Brothers and telling you what I thought. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience which this month is Danny Boyle's underrated sci-fi epic, Sunshine. Then we turn to the one that got away, and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the screen. This month, we're looking at Catherine Bigelow's unrealized Joan of Arc project. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at the Coen brothers and their baffling reimagining of Ealing comedy classic The Lady Killers. After a brief intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. For this episode, we'll be explaining what Marvel has planned for their future phases of MCU films, and when we can expect to see them following a year of COVID disruption. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the Podcast Magazine Letters page. NY Mackham is back with a recommendation, Have You Seen Les Visiteurs? It's a French film where Jean Reno is a medieval knight who was sent to the future by a witch's curse to find his manservant's descendant, who is the local Big Cheese. It's pretty funny, like a time-travelling Blackadder. Sounds good, I'll give it a go. Motor City Cobra writes in regarding last month's remake, Hate Watch of Planet of the Apes. My piss is boiling just thinking about that film. Mark Wahlberg and Helena Modern Carter can fuck off. My sentiments exactly. People have been joining in on the socials about our hidden gem this month. Uh, Brian says, I thought most of Sunshine was great, intelligent sci-fi, but the third act was kind of a letdown, though. It just turned into a typical horror movie. Scott also weighed in on Sunshine. Amazing film, stunning visuals, and amazing soundtrack. Teo agreed it's underrated. Christoph said it's one of Danny Boyle's best, and we'll be getting into that later. There's lots of love for our classic this month, The Blues Brothers, glowing comments on the socials from Viral, Arnold, Chris, Ben, David, and others. One note of caution was Andrew saying, it is one of my favorites, but might be overlong for newer viewers, and the cameos might not mean anything. Alex, Tasher, and Torrance wrote in defending the Lady Killers remake we'll be discussing later, and there was a surprising amount of love for this film on the socials, actually. They all quite liked it when it came out. We might have to agree to disagree on that one. Marty Moose has a recommendation of a new film just out, Possessor, a sci-fi thriller from Brandon Cronenberg. You can clearly see his old man's influence. Thought this was really very good and one of the better films I've seen this year, which, yes, I saw reviews of this and I definitely want to see it. I notice it's streaming, but on a service that I don't use which is a pain in the arse, uh, although that's probably going to be a common issue as streaming increases in prominence and there's so many different services. 
Thanks for all your comments, everyone. Uh, that's all from the letters page. Let's uh, get on with the rest of the show. Now for our monthly roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. There's a little bit of film news for us to discuss and a look at what we've been watching. Note, we're not doing a Christmas special episode because Christmas specials are by and large shit. Um, uh, we, we thought briefly about talking about, you know, Christmas films as a big topic, but we thought better of it. We thought Marvel was going to be more interesting. Although James, I don't know if you have any kind of favorite Christmas films that you're definitely going to be watching this, Ooh, uh, yes, this holiday that is, season. That's a very nice angle to take it. This is not what we planned for, but I do like the spontaneity. Um, my favorite Christmas films. Um, what well, are we allowed to say Die Hard? Yes, yes, we it's, can. Because it's not traditional in the sense that it's about celebrating Christmas, but it's it's set at Christmas, so we're having it. I mean, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's always an endless debate about Die Hard. It is a Christmas film. It's about a man who's trying to get together with his family um, and and at Christmas. And Lethal Weapon, by the way, isn't, which some people say it is, because as always, uh, Mel Gibson's family is dead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we solved that. You can, you can stop the debate now. Merry, Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I in terms of Christmas films, we always tend to watch Elf every year. Elf is Elf is very good, and it's it's still a bit silly, but it's one of those ones that I watched when it first came out when I was seven, and fuck, Elf came out seventeen years ago. Yeah, um, I know it's mad, isn't it? And I, I can still watch it now and quote it um, endlessly. I do like a bit of Elf. Your traditional ones, um, I do like a bit of Home Alone. Home Alone one mm-hmm. and two are actually solid kind of films. There's probably the, your classics like it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. It's, yeah, pro- yeah. it's a wonderful life is probably your best typical Christmas film because it's Jimmy Stewart and it's a it's you know it's actually about Christmas Christmas not in the sense that it's a guy trying to get home for Christmas. You know what I mean? If we're comparing it against Die Hard, other Christmas films. There's Medical on Thirty Fourth Street. It's a bit shit. Um, is it Elf? I, I, am I am I drawing a blank here? But I think it might be Elf for me. I think Elf. I think Elf is my favourite. We we also tend to watch Christmas Vacation whenever it's on at Christmas. Dev really likes that. My uh, my wife, uh, your stepmom, she's got a real thing for silly humour. Watching her watching a scary movie film is a, a sight to behold. <laughs> um, she just that, that stuff just tickles her funny bone. So we always watch Christmas Vacation as well. Anyway, on, on to some news. I mean, I've got a couple of news topics. I'll chuck one out and you can chuck one out. Uh, Cineworld has secured financial support with $750 million. I don't know why they said it in dollars, but they did to help it through the pandemic. Uh, it all involves a lot of complex jargon that no one under- understands outside the finance industry, but hopefully it means they'll still be around You know, after we all get the vaccine. So that's one bit of good news. We've been talking a lot about the cinema's bit struggling, so some good news at least. Yeah, thank fuck for Any- that. Um, yeah. Any news you've seen? Um, I think the big one that we're we are hoping to touch on. Um, we've had a couple of ideas for upcoming conversations, but it's obviously the um the Johnny Depp thing. Yeah. Um, which I don't want to give our opinions away on the matter before we talk about it, but I think it's very interesting to talk about um Hollywood's kind of cancel culture. Um, yeah, I mean the whole Johnny Depp case has raised a lot of questions, and while the court cases are ongoing, we thought yeah. we'd look into that. That's definitely just, that has yeah. been big news, to be fair. It's, yeah. it's more it's more of a case of you know where do we draw the line at cancelling? Because I think with people like Harvey Weinstein and your Kevin Spacey, they're horrible pieces of predatory shit. But you look at um, 
Johnny Depp's on, it looks like it's it looks like they were both in a toxic relationship and they both did wrong. Yeah, so I think that'd be interesting to maybe tuck yeah, into yeah. at a later date. Um, yeah, film that's news. a nice nice little trailer for future activity. Yeah, little... I've noticed Wonder Woman 1984 has confirmed that it will be released in cinemas. Oh, fuck yeah, did you see that yesterday? The whole um, Warner Brothers have decided to just stream everything next year. That was the big news. Oh, I, no, I didn't see that, actually. I don't know how I missed that. No, 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 uh, let, let's run with that. Well, I'll, I'll quickly finish the Wonder Woman thing. Wonder Woman 1984 is going to be released this Christmas. It's also streaming simultaneously on digital services, but they haven't said which services yet. And I thought that was kind of typical of what we said last month about the film companies not really being on you know, on board and on you know getting with the program about working out how to, how to work with streaming. But anyway, Wonder Woman 1984 will be out for people to watch. Anyway, bigger news. Yeah, Ma- Warner, tell me about this. So- I'm on Variety right now. Um, I wanted to do it just as I didn't know to read that off the top of my head. But Warner Brothers are to debut their entire 2021 film slate, including Dune and Matrix 4, both on HBO Max and in theatres. That's interesting. So, I mean, it'll it'll be a good... They can kind of say, can't they? They, can't, they can kind of say that they're just doing it now because of COVID. And then they can see how it works. I think, it, I think do, it doesn't have to be a permanent change, but if it works, it would probably be seeing more of this, right? I wonder if it's because the yes, there's a vaccine um, coming up, but we've obviously got fucking idiots that we share a planet with who are probably going to be reluctant to take the vaccine, and therefore it's going to create some anxiety to kind of people to come out of their COVID shell, so to speak. You know, yeah. are people that have been shielding, you know for the past eight months, you know, who have been paranoid that they're going to get this disease and potentially die from it. So I think they, I'm, can, they might not venture out just yet, right? So I'm saying I'm wondering if it's to service both audiences. So people like myself and, you know, maybe yourself, see you're that's comfortable going out and, you know, going out into the, the, um, the public and doing it. Whereas some people you might know, like, you know, Dev, who's, who's your uh, wife has just had a baby and therefore, you know, could be a bit vulnerable. So people like that might want to just kind of stay inside and watch films. So I kind of like the idea, but the actual list, have you seen the list of the film? So no, Matrix, no, no, you, the Matrix still 4, brand new to me. The Matrix 4 and Dune are obviously the big ones because Matrix 4 is the Matrix and Dune is massive. Like it's something that's, the book is about five years long. Um, yeah, I'm so, really interested to see what happens with Dune. I mean, they've obviously, they've had one go at making it as a film and it, it, it was terrible. Kyle MacLachlan back in the... Yeah, yeah, yeah it just, they just, they just get everything wrong. You know, they tried to make a, four, they tried to make a film like a two hour, 10 minute film. Like, and I think the original cut was four hours, which might just have done it. Um, And now they're having a crack at it. And what I understand is Denny Villeneuve splitting the film into two halves, which is probably his best chance of doing a good job of the film. So I'm excited to see how that works. And probably there'll be, because it's long and quite epic, it'll be one that will lend itself to home viewing while, of course, you'd still want the chance to see it on the big screen. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical adaptation of In the Heights. Oh, nice. I think that's the, is that not the musical he did before Hamilton? Um, I think so, yeah. That that rings a bell, yeah, I mean, yeah. Anything by Lin-Manuel Miranda is worth watching because the guy is incredible. He's a genius. Um, yeah. A Sopranos prequel called The... Interesting. Is, I think it's called, is it called The Many Saints of Newark? All right. Uh, okay. Suicide Squad, which is that the one that's being done by James Gunn? Or am I... Possibly. The rest of the list gets a bit... Mm, Judas and the Black Messiah, a remake of Tom and Jerry. That's not the same film. Um, Godzilla vs. Kong, which, ugh, I mean, I'll go and watch that because it is Godzilla vs. Kong, but the latest Godzilla films have been a bit shit. Yeah, um, and Son of Kong was, uh, not Son of Kong, Kong Skull Island was a bit of a letdown as well. Great soundtrack, though. Very good soundtrack. Yeah, fantastic I, soundtrack. I do like that, is soundtrack. Uh, that is another true. Another fucking video game adaptation of Mortal Kombat. Um, Angelina Jolie's Those Who Wish Me Dead, I 
I must admit, I know nothing about that. The Conjuring, the devil made me do it. Probably not going to see that. Space Jam, where they basically just made Space Jam again, but instead of Michael Jordan, they've got LeBron James. I probably will watch that. Um, yeah. And then Reminiscence with Hugh Jackman, again, something I don't know a lot about. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, so James we'll find out more Malignant about that later. And Will Smith sports drama, King Richard. Okay, okay, that's so interesting. So there's quite a lot going on there. I wonder if this is because HBO Max are wanting to really rival... Uh, Netflix because Netflix has a like a real you know um, they've got real market penetration haven't they? Well, they've just got this. They've almost got a monopoly on it. So I'm wondering if HBO Max are just going look, we're going to fire all these films on our streaming services, just try and boost numbers and then show you, what they I can think do you, as a platform. You can't afford not to be in the game, right? Well, yeah, because Netflix are just they're, they're, Netflix are streets ahead. Netflix originals are very good. I've watched The Crown, which is a work of fiction, but it's uh, yeah, they're, they're they're really they're doing so well with their series and some of their films are starting to to hit the marks as well now. Yeah, that would be interesting. I can't, I can't believe we nearly missed that news out because that was huge. Yeah, I honestly didn't see it. I guess I was uh, busy with other things. And the only other bit of news I've got, it's just to, just to let everyone know, and I'm going to be trying to find a way to watch this as well myself. Anthony Mackie of Falcon and Hurt Locker fame is in a new mind-bending sci-fi film that looks interesting called Synchronic. Uh, it's in UK cinemas and on digital release on the 29th of January. I know that's a bit way ahead, but the news came out this month, so I thought I'd... Uh, Thought I'd trail it. I'm looking forward to finding more out about that. It's kind of a bit indie, bit bit weird. I'm looking forward to seeing what that turns out like. Are any cinemas actually open? I know where I'm staying in Scotland right now, uh, we've got tier four restrictions, which means lockdown well, basically. So, um, I I did see that my local cinema was open, uh, but I kind of not sure if I'm going to go out in everything that's going on at the moment. Has it been shut for your past two it, weeks? It, of it was shut. It was shut for the lockdown, and it appears to have reopened. It's advertising films again. To be honest, there's nothing new on just yet, and I think given that the infection rate is high, I'm probably going to keep my powder dry for an actual new film. Uh, Tenet was released on a DVD and Blu-ray for those who didn't get to go and see it, which we haven't have we properly dissected Tenet. No, I think that's probably another big conversation to do a, uh, a sort of probably a spoiler-tastic, you know, long chat about it. Maybe not a big conversation. I don't think I've got a lot to say about Ten. I didn't think it was as good as Christopher Nolan could have made it, but maybe we could maybe we could shoehorn it in somewhere. Um, all right, should we talk about what films we watched this month? Uh, yes, we got very uh, so. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you start. You make a go. Uh, again, I uh, I think I might be a bit guilty of not watching many films at the moment. I am very much a TV series person at the moment, mainly because. The hours I've been working at work, I've been working about 45 hours a week just with because of the new lockdown in the area I work in. We were just picking up extra shifts and um, I, I either get home from work at about three in the afternoon, having been awake since four in the morning and I watch an episode and I crash at about 5 p.m. or I get home from work at about 10 p.m. Or when I finish work at quarter past 10, it's actually a 25 minute drive from my work to where I stay. So it's uh, me getting home at 11. I don't really want to stick a film on. So I'm probably guilty of not watching enough. You, yeah, you, you can fit in an hour, but not two, right? And there's yeah. something about watching half the film and then watching the second half of the film. That, I mean, um, I do it. I do it just to fit it in, but I know what you mean. Let me. Let me go to my streaming apps, which I've organised accordingly. Well, um, while you're while you're doing that, while you're looking for some list, I'll quickly chuck a couple yeah, in. Right, I watched right. a, I watched a couple of Pixar's. I watched a Bug's Life, oh, just God. to kind of watch it again. That's a, it's an old classic. I watched Cars, which I know you don't like, and it isn't great, but uh, the I baby like the first likes. One. I like the first one. The first one is an okay film as it is. Sorry to just, yeah. but the second one and the third one can fuck off. Um, Absolutely, I, I've never even watched the two of them all the way. No, actually, I have watched Cars three. I watched it on the cinema. It, it wasn't great, but yeah, I mean, the baby likes bright colors and engine noises, so it did a job anyway. So, right, what you got? So, 
I've gone to my Netflix and it just says continue watching for James. So it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I watched the start of that Maradona in Mexico series. Just uh, stopped watching last week after um, he passed away. Uh, just as a recommendation, I want to watch the one that Asif Kapadia has done. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard that's very good. I've not uh, seen it. Though. Nightfall, which is about the Templar Order. It's a heap of pish. Um, yeah. yeah, it's all TV shows actually. Um, I'm still watching The Mandalorian. Can't fault The Mandalorian because it's yeah, I've I've caught I've, I've caught up now. We binged it. It's great, incredible. The, um, the the Star Wars people must be kicking themselves. They didn't get John Favreau to do the new films. Uh, yeah, John Favreau is a very reliable and solid director. Actually, uh, yeah, but he, he can handle a blockbuster, and he's clearly got his head around the story. So it's like fucking yeah, staring seemed, him in the face. They could have got him to do it. Seems like a bit of a nerd, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, in a good way. I can't think off the top of my head of films I have watched this month. The films I've watched are the ones that we're gonna we're a way to you know analyze yeah. and dissect. So okay, well sometimes it sparks your memory when I cover the ones I've watched. Yeah. Uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse I watched. Oh, that's good. I, I yeah, it's, I think this is the best Spider Man film. Um, which I mean, I like the new lad Tom Holland. Um, um, but I don't think they've quite done the absolute top quality film for him yet. Although the films have been quite good. Into the Spider was brilliant. So inventive. So clever. Um. The Born Supremacy I watched, just because it was on the telly. It's probably on ITV4, thinking about it. Uh, it's great stuff. I've seen it loads before. You know, everyone knows about Born Supremacy. It's great stuff. Hidden Fortress I watched. It's the Akira Kurosawa film that influenced George Lucas the most. Um, those two bickering servants that he repurposed into droids. Um, the screen wipe between scenes came from there. And the princess that needs to be rescued all came from Hidden Fortress. So it's a big influence on George Lucas. It's very of its time. Um, it must have seemed really super action-packed when it came out in like 1958, although it's probably quite slow-paced to the modern taste. Um, still, you know, cracking film, um, which because I always do an impromptu top 10, it's influenced me to do one. Uh, so the impromptu top 10 for this month is top 10 uh, European and American films uh, that were influenced by Akira Kurosawa in no particular order, although you can see why I've done this one first. Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, as we discussed. The Magnificent Seven. A Fistful of Dollars, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, because the Battle of Helm's Deep is heavily from uh, Seven Samurai. Django Unchained uses a lot of camera angles and techniques from Kurosawa. Mad Max Fury Road has a whole subplot that's similar to Seven Samurai, the bit where Max goes off and kills the whole squad of bullet farmers. Hero, very uh, close to Rashomon. Uh, The Usual Suspects, likewise. And Speed, which was actually inspired by a Kurosawa screenplay for Runaway Train. So that's the impromptu top 10 for this month. Very good. Um, what else did I watch? I watched the original Karate Kid. Um, again, it was on telly. It was on, it was on telly while I was doing the dishes and I ended up watching the whole thing. Um, absolute nonsense, but very enjoyable. It's basically Rocky with chopsticks and a bit of teenage high school angst. Um, you know, what, what else is there to say about the Karate Kid? I also watched 13 Assassins. That's directed by Takashi uh, Miike, who is uh, Quentin Tarantino absolutely loves him. It, it is itself a remake of an older samurai film about supposedly real events. Now, Takeshi Miike has a reputation for being really bloody and violent for films like Audition and She the Killer. And this film has a reputation for being very violent and bloody. But And I was expecting, as a result of that, a total like gore apocalypse. But actually, it's much more restrained, restrained than that. I mean, it's violent because there are whole samurai battles. There's like a 45-minute samurai battle at the end, which is immense. But I, I thought the violence was just in keeping with the film. It wasn't like insanely kind of, you know, blood spurting like, um, uh, you know, the crazy 88 scene in, in Kill Bill. Um and it's quite good on that, how samurai culture worked, although not quite at the depth of some of the great samurai epics like Seven Samurai. Definitely worth a watch, though. And I watched um, Colour Out of Space. Um, now, this is directed by Richard Stanley, who we discussed in previous podcasts, and it's based on H.P. Lovecraft, who we discussed in previous podcasts. 
And I mean, I like this because it's great to see Richard Stanley directing again after 25 years in exile. Um, it's nice to see an interesting director tackling H.P. Lovecraft. I liked it. It was like quite weird and atmospheric. It's about like a meteor that lands on a farm and starts to take everything over with a color that they haven't seen before. Um, it's not, it's got a nice creepy slow burn and it's gory and it's got some good things in it. It doesn't quite come together. Um, it's not the definitive H.P. Lovecraft adaptation. While I was watching it, I was thinking that all the things that would have made this work really well were, were done better in John Carpenter films like The Fog, The Thing, and In the Mouth of Madness. Um, Nick Cage is quite good, though. His, his batshit crazy style works for the film. So that's pretty much all I watched this month. Very good. I don't have anything to add. The only thing I'd like to say is that from the news this week, um, David Prowse, the actor who played Darth Vader, passed away at age 85. Oh, yes, good catch. Yeah, um, yeah, he did pass away. Yeah, Which is, you know, a shame. I mean, he, he didn't do the voice to Darth Vader, but he was still the imposing figure that uh, Darth Vader uh, is and was in those films. And also... Um, Hugh Keysburn, the actor who played Toe Cutter in the original Mad Max and Immortan Joe in Mad Max Fury Road, passed away at age 73. That's right, yeah. Two two big masked villains dying within a week of each other. So yeah, just give it, get a little shout out to those guys. Yeah, playing, uh, yeah definitely. Do you, know what I, do you know what I've, I've sort of realised about David Prowse that I, I didn't realise until all the news coverage? Although obviously James Earl Jones does the voice in the final film, um, Dave Prowse was doing his voice or was actually acting and saying all the words in every scene. For like the blocking and the kind of... Yeah, yeah. The- but but also giving the actors something to react to. So all the stuff where you see Darth Vader talking or gesturing and all of that, he's actually giving an acting performance. Do you know what I mean? It's quite interesting that everyone thinks of James Earl Jones as Darth Vader, but Dave Prowse actually did a lot for the character, yeah. right? Yeah, no. Rest in peace, okay. big man. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, I think that's the news for this month, and we will obviously be back with more news, films, and and discussions in our roundup next month. Now for the classic feature, where we try and watch something from our list of great, worthy, or more highly recommended films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films. I mean, we got to see and share our thoughts on great works like Lady Vengeance, Punch Drunk Love, Les Diaboliques, Let the Right One In, David Cronenberg's Crash, Das Boot and Casino. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, uh, partly due to various listener recommendations and also now that James is co-hosting and looking at classics he hasn't got around to seeing. So currently our watch list looks like this. Wages of Fear, Train to Busan, Hell or High Water, The Assassin, The Blues Brothers, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, the Oscar-winning Japanese film Departures, CSA, The Confederate States of America, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, The City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, and Boyhood. This month, we're turning to a classic that, James, you've been meaning to see, which is an old favourite of mine, the legendary action comedy musical The Blues Brothers. I was a bit concerned that perhaps this is perhaps too much of its time to still translate, um, but I thought it would be interesting to, um, to see how this worked for you. So over to you, James. Okay, so I, my dad had basically recommended that I watch uh, Blues Brothers for ages because I started getting into the music of Sam Cooke and Otis Redding and all these people. And, you know, and he said, right, watch Blues Brothers. Then. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And you know when someone tells you to watch something, the more you don't want to watch it. And for yeah, me, yeah, I, I get it. I you know, get the more, it. No, the more I do, I, the only reason I do that is because a film gets so hyped up to the extent that I'm not going to enjoy it. So I left it. Yeah. The yeah. same thing happened for Pulp Fiction. I don't think Pulp Fiction is Tarantino's best film, and I think it's, compared to the stuff that I've watched without the hype, I don't think it's as good. 
and that to other people who watched it for the first time when it came out probably think I'm an idiot but that's just it's just what happens when someone recommends a film to me so I watched I watched Blues Brothers the first time the the other day when was it Tuesday night I think or Wednesday night and I'm not gonna lie I didn't think it was that good um just didn't think it was I just didn't didn't click with it I I'm not a big fan of Saturday Night Live sketches, and it just felt like one big Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, the soundtrack was really good. I was, you know, singing along and enjoying a lot of the songs. Um, but for me, I just, I just one of those films I just didn't connect to, unfortunately. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's it's one of those things. I know you know what it's like when you recommend a film to someone. You really hope that they like it. Do you know what I mean? But that, this is just one of those things. It is really, really of its time, which is a strange thing to say when it's actually about kind of older classic music. Um, I think some of the stuff it, it, it satirizes like, you know, car chases and that type of character, you know, the, the kind of deadbeat um, blues guy character and, and a lot of the stuff in the film. It's very, it's kind of like almost like watching an episode of Have I Got News For You from 40 years ago. It's like there's yeah. going to, you know, there's going to be a lot of references to things that just, uh, you know, go stale really fast, I suppose. I mean, in, in terms of background to this film, it's interesting that it, um, obviously it, it is going to look a lot like it's from SNL. It was Blues Brothers was a sketch on the show, but not a comedy sketch where the actors have a story that, you know, um, because, you know, those films can be really hard to translate to the big screen because whatever the sketch is about is over and done within two minutes. So how do you make that last two hours in the, in the show? They, um, they just did songs because both of them were just big fans of the blues. Um, Dan Aykroyd grew up near a blues club where he actually hung out with and, and jammed with Buddy Guy and Howling Wolf, which is uh, really lucky to, to have done that. And uh, Dan Aykroyd rented a blues bar in New York when he joined Saturday Night Live where the cast could hang out. But I think it's one of those things. If if Saturday Night Live, is, Saturday Night Live isn't your thing and those, those references don't mean anything to you, like 40 years later, I could see why a lot of it would seem hugely self-indulgent a waste of time because it is one of the most self-indulgent films of all time even someone who's a fan of it would admit that yeah i there were it wasn't that it was completely unfunny like for example i'm about to rip the lady killers to shreds it wasn't that i hated it it's just the moments that i knew that were meant to be funny i just wasn't connecting with as much like i was sat Mm. there with my my housemate rory and he's seen it before and he loves it it's his dad's favorite film and he he was fighting like like he was fighting like bits funny and like he was pure laughing at um John Belushi doing a front flips down the church, um, mm-hmm. the church aisle. He's trying. I just, uh, I, I don't know. I just didn't find it funny. I, yeah, yeah I get you. one of those things where it's like, oh, it's a, oh, it's a fat guy doing front flips. Uh, I think it's just because I've seen all. Maybe it's because I've seen all these jokes done before, after Blues Brothers came out, and it's like yeah. that, that comedy's been inspired by that film. But it was just for me. It was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I mean that that can be a pitfall, isn't it? When when a, when a film has been that big, it's actually been done yeah. so many times that it doesn't seem like much when you do it. I mean. It's a similar thing. I don't know if you've ever seen the stand-up routine that John Bishop does, the, the that Scouse comedian. He was talking about, you know, what's cool from, from his childhood. And he basically forced his teenage son and some of his son's friends to watch Saturday Night Fever. And right. they just, just laughed all the way through it and thought it was the most stupid thing they've ever seen because it just does not translate to a younger audience. It's just one of those things, right? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think what you've put your finger on is everyone, everyone loves the musical cameos. Oh, because, the music cameos are brilliant. They're, they're really. Yeah, you know, you've got Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, James Brown, Chaka Khan, John Lee Hooker, Cab Calloway. Um, so here's my first fun fact. There's always fun facts in here. So uh, why don't we just we'll do the fun fact collection because I'm always. 
partly because I just wanted to use that soundbar, but also I'm always jumping in with the fun facts. Um, the the makers of the film, the director John Landis and the two stars, they had to fight really hard to get original blues and soul performers into the film for the cameos. Because it was being filmed in the late 70s and released in 1980, the studio wanted all disco performers. And can you imagine how shit that would have been? That would have been, yeah. It confirms everything we've ever said on this podcast about studio executives. Um, the other cameos, this, these are the ones that might not mean anything to you because a lot of them are very much of the time. Twiggy, they're like the first supermodel, the 60s supermodels in it. She's the woman at the petrol station that Dan Aykroyd chats up. Yeah. It's like, I think for a, a modern audience, that's like, so what? Um, Frank Oz, who does the voice of Yoda and Miss Piggy and has directed a few films himself. He's the prison guard who checks uh, John Belushi and his, uh, his belongings out at the start of the film. And Steven Spielberg is the clerk uh, at the end that they that they uh, that they that they meet at the end when they're trying to um, hand in their money before they get arrested. Yeah, the ca- the cameos were great. I really enjoyed the uh, Ray Charles and the Aretha Franklin one. Um, but it did it did sort of seem like it became a kind of crutch for the film to kind of rely on. It, it is. I mean, th- this is the thing, right? And uh, look, I love this film, and I think I love this film because it's it's part of an experience I had when I was a kid. Do you know what I mean? And every time I watch this film. I'm enjoying that experience again. I totally get why it's not for everyone. Um, but it is, you know, you know like when, when they did Zoolander 2 and all of a sudden they've got every other every other scene, they've got like five-star cameos because everyone wants to be in on it now. It's like you can't fall yeah. into that trap where it's like, okay, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't a film anymore. This is a this is stars hanging out with each other. Um, my best cameo, best cameo of the, of the film though, Mr. T. I miss Mr. T. Where was he in it? So did I. I still don't actually know where he's in. I was reading up on this. He has a small appearance as an extra. He was John Belushi's bodyguard on the production at the time because he hadn't made it as an actor. And he's in the film somewhere as big, tough bloke. But because he doesn't have, you know, because he's not dressed up as B.A. Baracus, he's he's much harder to spot. He's oh, probably only in for like half a second. I don't really want to watch it again to fucking see him now. I did a Google image search to try and see him and I could not find him. Shit. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, the, the references and the style are very tied to to a certain era. I mean, a lot of things that, um, that I think people love about the film, like from that era, it's the stuff like the car chases are just so over the top. Yeah, and and you know the bit where the where the police uh, radio guy says the use of unnecessary violence to apprehend the police brothers has been authorized. The Illinois Nazis, you know, it's all, all of these things are kind of. And it's it's probably the sort of film that's really irritating to watch with a fan if you're watching it for the first time because they'll be sort of jumping up and down in their seat knowing that the next thing's about to happen that they'd really like. It's definitely that kind of fan film. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a hugely excessive film and you'd be unsurprised to know that absolutely astonishing amounts of cocaine were consumed uh, during the production of the film. Very good. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just about... Um, you know, and and obviously it's a very interesting document of the time because you see thin Dan Aykroyd, which is something you'll never see again. Yeah, is, does he? Is he fat for Ghostbusters? Is that by the time Ghostbusters comes around, he looks like modern day chunky Dan Aykroyd. Okay, right. Yeah, I was I was very confused. I was like, oh shit, he's like yeah. Dan Aykroyd. He's got a, he's got look at that jawline. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it's, it's it is what it is. I mean, for I mean for people who who haven't seen it, it might not be your bag. It, it's worth watching for the musical cameos, and if you do like that sort of thing. Um, you might like it, but like I say, it's a it's a cult it's a cult film, which uh, never goes across well to people who aren't in the cult. If you see what I mean? Yeah, it's, I didn't I didn't hate it, and I did find funny moments when the Nazis emerge on the road in their cars, 
with the the ride of the Valkyrie. I thought that was a there, there were funny moments, and I didn't you know I didn't hate the film. I just I just don't think I connected with it. You know, um, mm-hmm. some I think in Bruges is one of the funniest films ever made. But I've also found people that just don't have that don't find that sense of stuff, that sense of humor kind of funny. Yeah. I, I've got a I've got probably a, a darker sense of humor than what Blues Brothers is. That's why I like uh, you know in Bruges and. Um, films like that so but i didn't i didn't hate it it's i can it's it's a classic for those who watch it at the time that kind of era of those kind of types of kind of stupid funny films but no i, I didn't hate it put it that way yeah. as much as yeah, I, I get it lady it's, it's 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 one of those things i think for these classic films i mean the 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 reason we do the feature is to is to watch the films it's to see them and, and kind of watch something that you wouldn't have otherwise watched um it doesn't mean you have to like them because it's not you know we're not north korea right And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why it deserves to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. Often in this feature, these are lesser known films that you might not have heard of, but this month we're talking about a film that you probably have heard of. However, it doesn't get the success it deserved at the time and doesn't get much of a mention when people talk about the back catalogue of the celebrated director who made it. Our hidden gem for episode eight is Danny Boyle's 2007 film, Sunshine. So James, we've both watched this. You might have watched it slightly more recently than me. I think it's maybe a year or two since I've seen it, but I still remember it well enough to to discuss it. So you watched it recently, haven't you? I've watched it this week, basically for all the films that we decided we were going to um, dissect in this part of the podcast. Basically, I get sent a a huge list of films from you and I I get told to choose one from each and uh, I decided Sunshine was a good one to do for Hidden Gem because I hadn't seen it for ages and it gave me a chance to actually watch it again. I don't think, I don't think I've actually seen it since I first watched it. When did it come out? 2005? I think I watched it in about 2008. So I was about 12 All at right, the time. Right, sure. okay. so, how, how did it hold up for you? So when I watched it when I, when I was 12, I was, it's, a, it's a 15, so I wasn't too young to be like, oh, you know, I didn't, you know, I was just scared by the final. I do agree with the, the listener whose name escapes me about the whole final act is a bit messy and kind of lets film down because I, I do think that's really true. Um, but yeah, the first time I watched it, I think I watched in the perfect, you know, the perfect sort of circumstances of I had no idea who Danny Boyle was, so I didn't know that he'd done um, Train Spotting and uh, 28 Days Later, which are films that are kind of different to this. It was, um, yeah, I think I watched in the best circumstances where I didn't have any, you know, didn't have any kind of things to maybe distract or, you know, uh, ruin my perspective of the film. And I thought the, fir- the first time I watched it, I thought it was really, really good. I thought the, um, the concept, I really like a good concept for a film. The concept of a film has to be yeah. really good. And I think the concept of this film is, it's solid. I do, I, I mean, I, I imagine the science doesn't stand up at all of a, you know, an astrophysicist was to have a little look at it. But um, yeah, on that, Brian Cox, the uh, the famous physicist and former keyboard player of D-Ream, um, he was the consultant on this, the way Kip Thorne consults on a number of Nolan films. So they did have a, a proper physicist who knows his stuff consulting on the film. But what Brian Cox said was he, you know, he told them how things work. He told them what's possible and not possible and what scientific theory says. They then did whatever worked for the film, some of which doesn't stack up scientifically. But he understood why they did what they did. And it does, you know, he under, he understood and was okay with the fact that they monkeyed around with things to, so that it would work dramatically. And, uh, you know, and, uh, so sorry, he, go ahead. Sorry, so he... he kind of what did he, did he think that they had to 
change some sort of things about the story to make it um, scientifically viable? Because there's no chance that a, a spaceship is getting anywhere within, I imagine, a certain amount, 100 million miles of the sun before it gets incinerated. So, I mean, I think, I don't think that was the thing that he picked out as being the most unrealistic. I think he, he said that you could probably get a, 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 a spaceship within sort of firing range of the sun to fire the bomb, whether he, he said it was highly unlikely that a, a bomb could be created that would be powerful enough to do what it, it's intended to do in this film uh, and some of the things about kind of the, the travel and you know the fact that spaceship still makes a sound in space his 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 issues with how scientifically it was were quite minor do you know what i mean i think it was one of those ones where you say they've they've done quite a lot which works scientifically they've done quite a lot which is scientifically bollocks but only to make it work as a film and it's fair enough was kind of his view Maybe some purists wouldn't be quite so relaxed about it, but if it's good enough for Professor Brian Cox, it's good enough for me. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so for the listeners who may not have seen it, let's just do a quick summary. Sunshine is set in 2057 uh, in a scenario in which the sun is dying and no longer giving off enough heat. So the earth is going to freeze. You know, the, the Sydney Harbour is already frozen over at, at the beginning of the film. A hand-picked international group of astronauts is on a mission to save the planet by piloting their spaceship within firing range of the sun, firing a huge kind of stellar bomb into it, I don't know, like a huge fusion bomb or something, which they hope will kickstart the sun back to life um, and then you know make their way home to a grateful and slightly warmer planet, is the idea. The ship is called the Icarus 2, um, after the Icarus 1 had previously attempted the same mission seven years before, but suddenly disappeared. So the reason that's significant in the plot is that on the way there, the Icarus 2, the, the stars of this film, they receive a distress signal from the old Icarus 1 and have to decide whether or not they go and rescue the Icarus 1 or just carry on with their mission. And that's when things get complicated and you get your you know, your usual um, uh, sort of jumping off point into the, the various challenges of the film. So that's what Sunshine is about. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of hard sci-fi. Um, it's the sort of thing that's kind of influenced by things like 2001 and Solaris and stuff like that. It's that kind of sci-fi film. Yeah, it's 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 actually surprisingly polished for a film that wasn't high budget and didn't it didn't make its money back, did it? It did quite poorly at the box office. It did very poorly at the box office. Yeah, um, and it, I mean, it had a forty million dollar budget, which um, I think they made that go a long way, didn't they? In terms of you know making it look like a good bit of sci fi, which is more common in these hard sci fi films and other ones because you don't have a massive budget, but you have got to make the film look good somehow. Yeah. Um, it's got a really good cast as well. I I think it's it's weird seeing a young Chris Evans and him not in a Captain America suit, but he's very good. Yeah, in it. I mean Benedict um, Wong. It's it's a great great general supporting cast. There are people think, like Michelle Yeoh and Rose Byrne, and, and lots yeah. of lots of the other actors are people. You look at them and go, oh, I know who that is, but you have to look them up if you see what yeah. I mean. Um, what I do like about the film is that as polished as it looks for a low budget sci fi film from two thousand and five. Um, so it's it's got a lot of conundrums in it. It's got a lot of like thinking about how you how you would or maybe create scenarios about how you as the uh, audience would react or want you to kind of yeah. engage that way. So, for example, are we are we allowed to do spoilers? Are we doing spoilers? Um, let's try and be a little bit circumspect about spoilers because we do actually want people who've not seen the film to so, see it. Okay, so I won't I won't use direct terms, but basically, like um, like Dad just mentioned, it's. Um, they have to decide whether to go and save the Icarus One or carry on with the mission. There's other, you know, dilemmas that they worry about, moral dilemmas about, you know, survival and things like that. 
it, it feels really it's I think it's acted really superbly it's you know how they how they choose basically uh, how they choose to survive kind of thing um, without giving too much away because yeah I, I mean I, I think I think what this film is about is like the idea that you can't just go you can't just hit the hyperdrive right you've got to find your yeah. way to travel out to the sun somehow and the logistics of that and the challenge of, of, of flying through space and how you're going to live is it's that kind of film like um, what's the one that Mark Kermit always goes on about um, the one with Bruce Stern. I'm going to kick myself and I'm not being able to remember that. Um, but, you know, uh, 2001 and even Interstellar, actually, the idea that, you know, you've got to crack the the, the scientific and logistical challenge of, of traveling through space and it's arduous and it's stressful. And the other concept is it's also similar to something that they actually say out loud in 2014 in, in Interstellar is um, what you find in space, the evil or the threat or the, the danger in space it's often, you know, it's not about finding scary aliens. Most of the threat that we find out there is what we take with us. Yeah. You're human beings and, and the fact that they're in an incredibly stressful, dangerous situation and they might lose it while they're out there is their biggest challenge, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no. Silent it, running. That's what I was trying to remember. Silent time. running. I've never heard of it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of par- uh, parallels between Sunshine and Interstellar's kind of dilemmas where in Interstellar they're, you know, deciding what planet even to go to, what planet's the best, and, you know, the, the emotional attachment to it and things like that. It's, it's, it's really good for that. But what I will say is that the final act is is very messy. It becomes very... It becomes just kind of like a generic horror film, which is a bit of a shame for someone as accomplished as Danny Boyle. Um, I mean, that is, a, that is a big topic of discussion. I mean, that is, the, that is the number one thing that, like, critics mentioned. It's the one kind of thing that people mentioned, like, on the socials talking about this film whether or not you are prepared to go along with that final act, it depends a lot about whether or not you're kind of um, going to be satisfied with this film. Cause it does kind of go full Gothic horror, doesn't it? There's bits of it that are somewhat reminiscent of, um, of event horizon. Although what's going on is entirely different to what was going on in event horizon. But the, you know, a lot of those ideas are very similar and you know, it's like the film takes a complete left turn. So the surprise and shock of what happens is obviously quite strong, but then you think, you've built this whole mood of kind of that hard, solid sci-fi, you know, that kind of this, this, this is going to be a long, tough journey. We're learning to survive in space. And then this whole other, other thing happens. I mean, I can see why I did it. I mean, because that's part of, it's almost like it's how we wanted to express the, you know, people flipping out, losing it and, and, and what, you know, what can go wrong out there, but it's, it's full on horror, isn't it? Yeah. It becomes really slasher and just, ugh. The problem I have is that I think they they struggled to finish the film. The film feels like a film that's got a really good concept of the sun is dying. Uh, this is a mission to reignite the sun and save Earth. Okay, great. You've got a really good start there. Where do we go? And then they kind of explain the you know the moral dilemmas and how there was a first failed mission. And then I think they got to the end. They thought, do we just end it this way and you know kind of end it the way it ends or do we make it a bit more entangled before they get to that ending? And I think that's why they introduced the whole, um, so the yeah, so, aspect of it. Um, so the, 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 where things start to go pear shaped in that third act and pear shaped in terms of the, the mission starts to go wrong in that third act without giving too much away, there's horror elements, there's kind of stuff happening. We did obviously mention that Icarus one is sending out a distress signal. Don't want to tell people anymore, you know, watch it for yourself, judge for yourself. I mean, I have to admit, when I watched it, I I quite liked the kind of the left turn into horror because I I thought I'd, I'd go with it because it's it's human horror. It's we've taken that out there with us. That's what we find. The horrors in space are the ones that we that we take with us. I, I was okay with it, although I, I 
you know what, I get what people are saying about it and maybe this film would be nearer to perfect if, like you say, they'd found a better way to express that in the third act. What I would say is the very end of the film, the very, very end, I thought was really well done. I mean, without giving away too much of the plot, after that, that kind of horror bit is done, the fi- the final bit where people have to decide, you know, where pe- there's, you know, obviously you're getting close to the sun, so people are trying not to burn up. There's all sorts of, you know, w- whether people are going to kind of survive or sacrifice themselves for others, and all, all of those dilemmas, and then the final shot of how they, you know, how they finish off the mission. I thought that was. I thought that was terrific, actually. That that final shot, I do. I am a big fan of the final shot. Inception is still the best final shot ever, but the final shot in Sunshine is very good. I think it's just. I feel like I think this film struggle with a real problem of how do we how do we round out like how do we sound out and then round off this kind of really good idea that we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not a bad film because of the third act it just makes it a little bit sloppy and a little bit messy. Is the only yeah. the only problem. Yeah. It's, it's a shame because Danny Boyle's work is usually so polished yeah and um it's interesting because the experience of this film has made danny boyle not do any more sci-fi films he said he found just found the whole thing so arduous alex garland on the other hand who wrote the screenplay he has actually stayed in the sci-fi genre quite a lot and he wrote the script for dread and he wrote and directed ex machina and annihilation and is the creator of the tv miniseries dead so he's really he's really stayed in sci-fi and you know i think he's probably He'd probably look back on Sunshine and say that he, you know, he's taken the lessons he learned making this film to, you know, to, to to carry on making, you know, the best sci-fi films he can make. Danny Boyle kind of, he doesn't want to do sci-fi anymore, um, which is a shame because I think he 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 could, you know, he could do a good job if yeah, he did another one. It, no, it um, is a shame. In terms of how this film did at the time, I think what I mean, I, I would argue, I really like the film, and, and I understand some people's criticisms of it. It's amazing what a, what poor performance it had. I mean, it did about thirty five million around the world against a forty million dollar budget. That's very shit. Um, what makes it worse is you know thirty one million of that is international, which it, it, hitting the international market is something they're better at these days. But it, back then, if you didn't do it in America, you've 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 failed, right? Because it's such a big market, and it only did four million dollars business in the states. So it just died on its ass at the US box office. And in terms of why that happened, I mean, there's a couple of things. Maybe, you know, there wasn't universal acclaim for the film because not everyone was on board with that third act. Maybe maybe universally great reviews might have got more people out to see it, perhaps. Do you think people found the title too generic? Is Sunshine too generic a name for the film? It's a bit lame, but also... You know, I tell you what, it's not lame, but it can appear as kind of lame, like oh, sunshine. Like, I'd, but I don't know what else they would call it. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the thing: is that the um, well, they could call it Solaris, but that te- that that sci-fi title is something like um, Helios or something like that. I don't yeah, know. Helio, yeah, Helios could, could do. Um, I mean, they also have the problem that there weren't any big star names in that film. I mean, all the people. I mean, Chris Evans is a massive star now, but he wasn't then. Killian Murphy is uh, should have been a recognizable face at the time, but again not like a, a massive star and you know he's actually you know bigger on telly now than he is in films even though he's you know got, he's had a terrific career um just a general thing in 2007 very few r-rated films made big money um there's basically like american gangster is like the biggest box office like 130 million dollars and that you know that had denzel washington in it that's your lot not many big you know um r-rated films back then um also the studio did a terrible job of marketing of marketing the film and we always talk about the studio we always slag off the executives but they chucked it into the cinemas in July when when they meant to, it was originally going to be done in September, and I don't know why they pushed it forward, but it meant it was up against all the um, the blockbusters. 
So it, it was trying to compete with a Harry Potter film and a Pirates of the Caribbean film when it was uh, coming out. It's just, you know, they didn't, they just didn't do the right, the right thing by the film in terms of that. There's also this thing with Danny Danny Paul. I mean, there's th- there was this there's this debate over 28 Days Later, although that film was definitely a success. Is some people thought that film was too bleak, and others thought it wasn't bleak enough. And and I think there's probably an element of that here as well. It's like you know that Dan- Danny Boyle likes he likes people to suffer and then sort of triumph at the end. Aye. He's you know, and that's not for everyone. You know, so, some people like a sci-fi film to be you know to work differently to that. Um, I mean, it's rem- it's remembered very fondly by people, you know, who bring it up in conversation. You know, just because a film doesn't do well at the box office isn't the be all and end all. You know, Zodiac w- w- came out that year and, and really flopped at the box office, and that's a great film. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of how things could have been different if it had done well at the box office, I mean, Danny Boyle did all right. I mean, Slumdog came out the following year and was a big hit, and he won an Oscar. So, um, I tell you what, it might have done for Danny Boyle. You might agree or disagree with this, James. Danny Boyle, apart from doing a big film on the beach, which had mixed reviews, and doing this, which had mixed reviews. He's never done a really big film, yeah? And I wonder if that had a bearing on how Bond turned out for him, you know, because he was going to be directing this this Bond film that hasn't come out yet, uh, and he essentially got fired from the production. And I wonder if he had had more success with and got on better with big-budget productions like this, he would have been better equipped to do a Bond film. Do you know what I mean? Interesting. That's an interesting point to make, and I was really disappointed when he was fired from the um, Bond production because I wasn't really impressed with. Um, what was the one that came out Spectre, and I thought oh, they've taken it down a different route. Who's taking over it now? Is it Kerry? Yeah, who's oh, who's also a good director. He's he's, he's he's good. I mean, I, I think he'll I think he'll do a good job. Um, what I, what I say about Danny Ball? I think it's a real shame they couldn't find a way to work with Danny Ball because, like you say, a genuinely interesting director. Uh, is always worth taking on for these films. Look at look at what Taika Waititi did when he started doing big films, right? Yeah. Um, when you actually hear about some of what Danny Boyle wanted to do with the film, like apparently he wanted to kill the Bond character off and stuff like that, you just think you've you've got to know how to take your stuff and make it work in the blockbuster format. You know, obviously Christopher Nolan in the Dark Knight trilogy is perhaps the best example of that because everything Christopher Nolan did in the Dark Knight trilogy was very Nolan esque but also drawn from Batman stories. And I think Danny Boyle just, I don't think he quite found the way to present his ideas to, you know, the broccolis to make it work. Yeah, quite. that's quite possible. I don't know if Sunshine was the the killer and all that, because I think after Sunshine, he, he went back to making um, Sunday Marina, which was a huge um, success, but it was made on a shoestring budget. Yeah, it's a relatively low budget film. And yeah. then... Um, same with Train Spotting Two. That's not a big budget film. Um, he made another film, didn't he? It was Trance. Yeah, and, and Trance. Trance is where Danny Boyle is really comfortable. It's got a, a really kind of hard edge to it. It's got um, you know twists and turns in the story. It's got a bit of sex and violence. Um, low budget, and therefore any sort of business it does, it's a success. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And putting putting yourself out there and needing to make a hundred million dollars just so that it's not seen as a failure. It's a different kind of filmmaking pressure, isn't it? Yeah. I I wonder if that's what happened with Sunshine. I hope that's not the case, and I hope people will come back and try to do a, a bigger project in the future. But mm. um, Yeah, I mean, the reason I wish this film would be more successful, apart from the fact that I quite like it, and I think it could have, could have done better business, I think Alex Alex Garland, has, he's done some really interesting films and probably could have had better numbers, box office, and support if he'd come out of this with more success. 
Um, I think it's a shame when someone trying to do something different and a bit more R-rated so that not every film is a 12. Um, it's a shame when that doesn't do well. Do you know what I mean? Because you look at like the figures for, the, for this year, 2007, everything is a 12 or a PG. And that's all very well, and I'm glad they're going for a wide audience. But sometimes something with a bit more kind of red and tooth and claw kind of approach is needed, and it's a shame that is getting edged out of, of the box office. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad because if they'd made more than $100 million, they'd have been okay. And all that would have taken would have been people to not go and see some of the following films that came out in 2007. Oh Pirates of the Caribbean 3, Spider-Man 3, Ugh. I Am Legend, which isn't as bad as some of the other films on this list, but still, Die Hard 5, Ocean's 13, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, Ghost Rider, and Norbit. I mean, if people had just kind of looked at those films and thought better of it and gone to see Sunshine instead... I think, you know, it would have been a fairer outcome, let's say. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've had this discussion about independent films before. Uh, people go and see the big shit films rather than the, the kind of niche hidden gems. But, you know, if someone wants to spend sort of this kind of money, well, th- this is the thing, right? If 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 Boyle and Garland, I mean, because this has already happened with Alex Garland for, for Annihilation, actually, um, uh and it probably Alex Garland would probably prefer to have done an Annihilation now, now that the Netflix original and streaming thing is bigger. But you look at the money that gets made available to some of these big Netflix films now. They could have done it now as a Netflix film uh, and probably got twice the budget and really kind of made it all work. And if they said, okay, we need to do some, we need to find a way to make this third act work, they'd have had more time and resources to do that. So uh, hopefully someone else is going to, going to be inspired by sunshine and come up with another because this is a nice deep well of hard sci-fi that people can do more films in this vein if they want so let's hope someone else comes and does something because the, the opportunities could be out there on netflix or hbo max maybe yeah potentially Now for our One That Got Away feature, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. For episode 8, we're looking at a project for a favourite director of ours who was featured in previous episodes, who not only suffered the pain of her film not getting made, but the indignity of someone else stealing her idea and making it instead. This month's One That Got Away is Catherine Bigelow's Joan of Arc project. So, James, obviously Joan of Arc is a historical character. Now, we both like our films based on real-life historical characters, and we both studied history and like a bit of history. So what's what's your view of what, what did you know about Joan of Arc, the, the character, before we decided we were going to discuss this? So in layman's terms, she was burnt at the stake. Um, no, she was uh, she fought in the Hundred Years' War. Um, she's, she's sort of been canonized as a saint, Um or has, yeah, she literally. Actually, has she literally? Yeah, yes, she, she has. I wasn't sure. Literally, if she, had. she was literally made a saint. What's interesting about Joan of Arc was she was literally made a saint about a hundred years after her death. Um, essentially, someone who is burned at the stake after claiming to be on a mission from God um, tends to get that sort of treatment from the Catholic Church. And also, in like the eighteenth and especially the nineteenth century, I think most of the nineteenth century, when France was trying to 
generate a bit of you know national pride and build its identity and, and point to its great heritage they started to really go in big on stories of Joan of Arc and talk about how great she was and what a big figure, figure she was. She had not been thought of as such a major figure prior to that. But from that point onwards, you know, when sort of, you know, this kind of national kind of consciousness started really developing in France, they really made a big thing for Joan of Arc. So interestingly, she's, she's grown bigger and bigger as a, as, as a, as a character as time goes on, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean the the the, the, the details of, of what she what she did are quite interesting. Like I say, she was born during the Hundred Years' War. By the by, fourteen twenty nine, she's age seventeen, and I mean the Hundred Years' War was a, a ridiculous war. I mean, essentially, because the English royal family were French, they were related to the kings and queens of France, and therefore had a claim on the throne, and decided they were going to spend a hundred years fighting for that. So the number of people who died in battle for essentially an argument between cousins over who should be king, right? Um. By 1429, in this like 100 years of like ebb and flow, the English were sort of on top. They had a treaty promising the throne to their next king. They were occupying territory in France. The real king of France was under siege in Orléans. So it looked like the English have got this sewn up, right? And Joan of Arc comes in. She's 17 years old. She's not from a, a, a noble family or anything. She's a farmer's daughter. She's illiterate. Just a random member of the public. She claimed to have been having visions since she was 13 from God and the angels, telling her she had to lead France to victory over the English, right? right? She turns up at the headquarters of one of the French army's generals and says God has told her to come and speak to the people in charge about leading their army. Now, understandably, they told her to bugger off because she sounds like a nutter off the street, yeah? But she persevered and won a couple of like offices in the army over, and eventually she got to speak to the Dauphin, which is what the French king or heir to the throne is called if he hasn't been crowned yet. He is so desperate because of you know he's pretty much got the English you know boot on his throat. He will try anything, and he makes her the general of his army and sends her out to lead the French into battle against the English. From you know random person off the street to general in the French army. Even more amazingly, she wins the battle. And what this does is this makes a lot of people in France believe maybe maybe she does have divine intervention. She says she's got God on her side. She's just beating the English after the English have been kicking her ass for like a couple twenty years now. Maybe we have some divine providence on our side. Maybe we're, we're destined to win this. Let's go and fight the English. And she rallied everyone to her cause and swung the war her way. Um, and then within a couple of years, she's done enough to turn things, turn the tide of the war. And, and English have kind of given up by then, although the, the war does drag on further. But, but after this, the English don't really have the foothold they had before, at which point the Dauphin crowns himself king and says, we don't need you anymore, Joan. You can go home. And unfortunately for her, that's not the end of it. The the English and their support of the Duke of Burgundy have her captured and tried for heresy and satanic practices. Just spite, really. They just wanted to take revenge. Ironically, one of the things they tried her for was cross-dressing because she had to wear a man's armour to go into battle. So this is the kind of shit they used to do back then. So after a no doubt completely fair trial, she's found guilty and burned at the stake uh, at the age of 19. So you can understand why people would find this interesting and want to do films and, and books about her. She's been in lots of books and theatre and music, at least 10 films. You know, she's got a bit part in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So you can understand why people would want to go back and tell her story, which in this case is Catherine Bigelow. Now, we like Catherine Bigelow on this podcast. Uh, I mean, James, I know you're an especially big fan of her film, Detroit. I'm an especially big fan of Zero Dark Thirty. Um, but it's the hard locker that's her... Or Jewel in the Crown, basically. Absolutely, yeah. We were very happy to see her win Best Director ahead of her ex-husband on that one. Um, <laughs> and and obviously, this podcast sang the praises of her original film, Point Break, when we were criticizing the terrible remake. So, 
and Strange Days was a hidden gem. So big, big Catherine Bigelow fans here. She's always been top drawer in terms of filming action and violence, although her style's changed over the years. There's always been something more going on than just the violence. There's always a bit of depth. There's always a bit of examination in what she's doing. So obviously her doing a big historical epic is something I'd definitely have liked to have seen. In, in in reading up on this, did you did you see much other than the the, the sort of basic headlines of the, of the story of why this film didn't get made, mate? Um, yes, I did a brief reading of it, so I know that she um, she was all set to direct a film about Joan of Arc, which I think would have been really good because she is a very talented director, and it'd been nice to have a female director direct a film about probably the most iconic female protagonist you can get. I can't think of a more iconic female character who she died at like nineteen, didn't she? Yeah, fighting so, against so, the English, so. Fun fact, if Catherine Bigelow's film had gone ahead, she would have been the first and to this day only woman who has directed a film about Joan of Arc. See what I mean? There you go. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I know that she was trying to make it and then was it Luke Besson, who I'm not the biggest fan of, uh, basically bought bought the rights to it effectively and put his um, wife in the role? Yeah, le- yeah, th- there's a, yeah, there's a little... Yeah, the, the background to this is that initially in the in the nineties, she was trying to get this done. She was trying to do this for a number of years. She was working on a script with Jay Cox, who wrote Gangs in New York um, uh, and, and other stuff for Scorsese. It, the film was going to be called Company of Angels, um, and you know, obviously, like you say, it would be quite interesting not just to see a woman do this film, but also Catherine Bigelow to do a film with a female lead character, which she hasn't done all that often. It would be interesting to see how this parallels to Zero Dark Thirty which is another lone female lead character sort of with a bit of a lonely battle on her hands. Um, she tried for a few years to get the funding that she needed for the film and just was finding it difficult. And in the mid-90s, Luc Besson, because he was coming off the back of Leon and a lot of success, he um, he agreed to be the producer and brought in financial backing for the film. So they originally they signed up together that she was going to direct it and he was going to produce it and his his financial backers were behind the film. So she had the money she needed to do the film. And what happened was he was expecting that Catherine Bigelow would agree to cast his wife, Mila Jovovich, to be Joan. Uh, Catherine Bigelow wasn't having that. That argument led to Luke Besson pulling out and Catherine Bigelow's production collapsed because if Luke Besson's not in, the finance isn't in. Right. He then went and made his own film of Joan of Arc with his wife in the lead role. Right. And Catherine Bigelow sued him because his version had used a ton of material. It, he actually took a copy of the script, I found out. Um, and and basically rewrote it himself. Um, so she sued him. They settled out of court, and Luke Besson went ahead and did his version of the film, which is, frankly, it's, it's a bit crap, it's and it lost money at the box office. And it also proves that Catherine Bigelow was quite right not to cast Mila Jovovich as Joan of Arc. Yeah, I don't think Mila Jovovich is actually any good at acting, but yeah. what, what do I, I mean? Know? Yeah, I mean, look, I quite like Luke Besson. I like him better than you, but he's not in Catherine Bigelow's class. He's also not done anything that great since Leon, if, if we're honest. Nowadays, I expect the worst when his latest film is A, based on a comic he drew in his bedroom when he was 12, or B, his 97th go at the story of your beautiful lady assassin. That's that's what's the tragedy about it, is that Catherine Bigelow would have been the first female director to do a film about Joan of Arc, and it's just been given to Luke Besson, who's basically just casted a young, pretty, not very good actress in the role, which he seems to do with most of his films, apart from Lucy, which is a shit film, but it's basically a, a young, pretty actress in, you know, tight costume yeah. that just seems to be for, really, fortunately because it's Scarlett Johansson you get a bit more performance out of that but yeah you're right it's yeah, it's, it's always it's always paper thin all of his stuff is very thinly characterised which is not going to get the best out of an epic about Joan of Arc where you're trying to you know if this could have been the female Lawrence of Arabia right this, this could have been let's really get under the skin of this character yeah not just the big events um, 
What I mean, what it does mean though is that the the Luc Besson film does give you a little glimpse of what the film could have been like because he used a lot of Catherine Bigelow's ideas. Um, the character called the Conscience in in Luc Besson's film is played by Dustin Hoffman. That was in the original script written by Jay Cox. The character was a device to help give the um, the, the story like an interpretation. He's, he's essentially her her imagination talking. You know, like uh, she talks to that character and it kind of explains what's going on in her head. That was the idea, except Luc Besson didn't do a very good job of it, whereas I think the Jay Cox original would have done a much better job of it if you've seen any of his films, um, the films that have been made based on his scripts. Um, um, the problem with the Luc Besson version is that it, it only comes in right at the end. So you have lots of big action because Luc Besson likes to blow things up. And then the whole second half of the film is, is Joan talking to her invisible friend. But that character, that idea of a, of a, a character kind of opening up what's going on in her head was, you know, was an idea that could, could have worked. I mean, you would assume the Catherine Bigelow version of this film would have had really intense all-out action for the battle scenes, but would have got to the bottom of who Joan was. You would expect that's what she was going to try and do, yeah? Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's just a bit of a shame, this one, because it could it had so much potential they just gave it to Luke Besson, who isn't very good at directing anything. He's not very good at making any films. I don't know why people go and spend it. He did, what did he do recently? Valerian, the City of a Thousand Planets? He got a lot of money to make that film, didn't he? Fuck me. He can cast in Cara Delevingne and Dane DeHaan, who are both not that good. I don't mind Dane DeHaan, but he's not been in anything good since the Chronicle. Yeah. Um, it's, just a, it's just a shame. It's one of those ones where you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, you know? Yeah, I mean, so what we always do in this feature is try and kind of say and find out what this film could have been like, and, and you know what 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 was going on in it, and, and and what what she had in mind for the film. I was doing some searches for information on the project, and I found some quite interesting stuff on this online. There's a blog by a bloke called Patrick Pritchett. He's a published poet now, quite highly regarded, and he's a professor of history and literature. He's worked at major universities like Harvard, so a very sort of accomplished man. Back in the 90s, as a young bloke, he was working for James Cameron's production company, which was developing Catherine Bigelow's Joan of Arc film. He, Patrick Pritchett was doing research in, in his job and having input into the script, which meant having meetings by the pool at Catherine Bigelow's house with her and Jay Cox, the writer, which sounds like a great job, by the way. I'd love to have been doing that between sort of uni and my first job, which is essentially what he was doing. Yeah. Um, fun fact, at this time, Catherine Bigelow had a dog, a German shepherd called Bodie, I'm not clear if the dog was named after Patrick Swayze's character in Point Break or vice versa, but I love that she had a dog called Bodie. Um, so I was able to get in touch with Patrick Pritchett because his his essentially there was an email address for him available that, on, a, on a public kind of site. Uh, so I wrote to him and asked him if he could share any more details about the film, and he very kindly emailed me back with his recollections. And it's always amazing when you can find people who are involved at the time and they're so generous, uh, which reminds me of when we got some help on Total Recall from Bill Florence who, by the way, is still offering top-quality photography services in the Arizona area. So this is what Patrick told me. In the early 90s, Sinead O'Connor was in line to play Joan of Arc and actually spent some time working with people on a production. Uh, in the end, they decided that wasn't going to work. She'd like done... There's a big difference between acting in pop videos and acting in a full-length film, right? So while she gave off a very strong Joan of Arc vibe, they didn't think she could actually pull off the performance. So... Casting's not settled. They're continuing with the production. Catherine Bigelow traveled to Europe to research locations. They, they were really moving on. Fox and Paramount passed on the film because they didn't want to back a big complex period film, essentially with, a, I guess, with a woman in charge. Again, 20 years on, I think that might have got, you know, she might actually get it now. But back then, no. And that's why it stalled. She went off and did Strange Days. And because that wasn't a hit either, she's still looking for backing. And that's why she turned to Luc Besson. Um... Because Luc Besson came in, Patrick was asked to work on it again, so we dug out all his old research and was helping work with it. But then Luc Besson basically shit on all of them. Patrick calls him a real rat, 
who took the script and did his own inferior version of it. So he completely confirms the official story that Luc Besson, you know, nicked her ideas. Now, what else he tells us? Before the plug was pulled, Catherine Bigelow had settled on Claire Danes to play Joan. She'd just come out of Romeo and Juliet. That would have been really good, personally. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that's an opportunity missed. You can get to see it. Patrick says that Catherine Bigelow had in mind to make Joan a kind of punky, gutsy character, which I guess is no surprise. That's how Catherine Bigelow likes to write characters. Um, uh, Jay Cox, the screenwriter, had the idea, and he, this is this is the script they were working on, that Joan was faking her visions because she knew that would make people take her a bit more seriously because people believed in that sort of thing. But that as a result of um, it working, because it makes people believe in her and it makes people rally to the cause and helps them beat the English, that she starts to believe maybe there's something in it too. So she doesn't believe she's having visions, but she believes that if, if people are that inspired, that it, it can kind of change the world. So you could see they were trying to do something with that. And Patrick says that this script was great, you know, and it's a real shame we didn't get to see him do it. And in terms of casting, the executioner, they had an idea for Gerard Depardieu. Um, They wanted Keanu Reeves to play the military leader, Dunois. Less less convinced by that. Yeah, I like, I love Keanu Reeves, but I don't want him doing an accent ever again. There are things, there's things he can and can't do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sean Connery was lined up to play Bishop Cochon, who um, who presided over um, Joan's trial, and I believe that's a character in Assassin's Creed Heresy, Bishop Cochon. Assassin's Creed what? Assassin's Creed Heresy apparently features Bishop Cochon. Oh, I've never, I, I didn't know that was a game. I've never heard of it. But again, again, I'm reading out what I read on the internet. So yeah. Maybe it's bollocks. Assassin's Creed Heresy. I've never heard of that. Um, but again, and, Sean um, Connery would have done a similar accent to the one that he did in Untouchables when he was Irish, and The Hunt for Red October when he was Russian. So again, I'm. I'm I, I think I think generic British accents always tend to work in um, in medieval films, though. So he might have got away with it. He got away with it in Name of the Rose. Um, and the Dauphin was uh, going to be Daniel Day Lewis. Was what they were working on. And, you know, I think this is a tentative cast list, but I think they've had talks with some of these people and that they know that that's what they were working on. Um, so obviously it's a great shame this didn't go ahead. We all know that Besson's version wasn't very good and we didn't get to see Catherine Bigelow's version. You know, like I say, it would be awesome to see her do an iconic female character like this. It also means that Catherine Bigelow had a bit of a shit 1990s in our, in our reality. In a parallel universe, she could have been basking in the success of Strange Days being a hit and this taking her over the top. And instead, she hasn't really come into her own until 2009 with the Hurt Locker. So it's a real shame that Catherine Bigelow, as good as she had, had this long period where she wasn't really getting the success she deserved. Um, yeah, this one feels more of like a shame, not in like a one that got away in the sense that you're like, gutted still the right word, but it's more of like a, oh, fuck, like that could have been a really good film. When- yeah, if she, I mean, you know, if Luke Bassano just stayed in his box, you know, Sat, sat tight and stayed as the producer and let Catherine Bigelow work, we could have seen this film, you know? Which, if the allegations are anything to go by, he's got uh, difficulty staying in his box. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, <coughs> let the court, we'll let the courts decide that. <laughs> so, I mean, if, 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 you, if you want to imagine what kind of film this is, you could, I suppose, watch the crappy Luc Besson version. At least you'll get to see Joan of Arc in armour. That would give you something. You'd also watch other medieval set films to give you the look and feel, like Kingdom of Heaven, Name of the Rose. Um, obviously you can and should watch all of Catherine Bigelow's films to get an idea of the films that she makes because they're great films and you know it gives an idea of her characters. Other than that, it's up to you and your imagination, I'm afraid, audience. Um, now, unless, of course, Catherine Bigelow decides to have another crack at the idea because Patrick Pritchett assures me he still has all the original research and a copy of the script. We'll get her on the phone then. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you.
We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions, it says here, and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This, however, we will be shouting and throwing things at a bad remake that was unjustified and very poorly done. The remake hate watch for episode 8 is the Coen Brothers' inexplicable 2004 version of The Lady Killers. Now, James, I believe you hadn't seen this before and you only watch it, uh, only watched it for the purposes of this feature, so I can only apologise for putting you through that. Uh, yes, I, the only, I've not actually seen the original one before, so apologies for that. Uh, but I know a shit film when I see one. Uh, the last, the only version I've seen of the original was an Amdram um, version of it, just on stage um, about three or four years ago now. Um, but you thought that was, that was pretty good. That, that was actually all right for it. an Amdram production. It was the original script, so it was like the Peter Sellers one. It wasn't the yeah, yeah. yeah. Fuck, it wasn't the uh, an Amdram version of uh, yeah, the no one would do that. one. Yeah. Um, but no, I've I've finished watching it literally this morning. Um, I tried watching so it last night. So you're you're you're, you're fresh <laughs> from it, and your piss is still boiling. Um, yeah, well, yeah, literally. It was, <laughs> I I went to the toilet, and you know, it was actually more fun being in the toilet, not looking at the screen, because this film is that fucking bad. It was okay. Oh. So let let's start with just the background, because you know, while we we are mainly going to rant about how much we hate this film, we do have to apply some structure. The original was a 1950s Ealing comedy classic about a criminal gang that rent a room from a sweet, innocent old lady because it's convenient for a robbery. Uh, posing as classical musicians who need a rehearsal room. She's a bit ditzy, doesn't realise what they're up to. Then she finds out what they've done and threatens to go to the police, so they make various farcical attempts to kill her. It's 50s British comedy on top form, uh, you know, proper black comedy style. Um, Alec Guinness, Peter Sellers, Herbert Lom. Jobs are good. Along came the Coen brothers with a remake no one wanted. And, I mean, when I saw that they'd made this film, I was baffled as to why they've done it at all. That, I mean, they are, they're capable of much better than this, but, and, and they were going through a bit of a slump at this point, but I just don't understand why they would honestly uh, choose to make a film this shit. I do not get it. Yeah. Uh, uh, as soon as I saw Tom Hanks' teeth in this film, I thought, oh, fuck. Why have they made him look like Colonel Sanders? I don't... See, this, this is the thing, right? If you, if you said to me, the Coen brothers are doing a film, it's kind of a, a, a heist comedy, and it's got Tom Hanks on it, I would initially think that that could be quite good, but this is fucking terrible. Yeah, uh, they've basically he looks like he looks like every Confederate general from the American Civil War. Um, but they don't do anything with that idea. Yeah, the you know I mean, he looks like that, but so what? Yeah, it's it's just so bad. And one of the things I read on the trivia on IMDb is that Tom Hanks said that he didn't want to watch. He'd never seen the original and didn't see the original because he didn't want it to influence his character. Uh, for this one, and by fucking god, does it show? Because maybe you'd watch the original one, you'd have put in a decent fucking performance, which is rare from Tom Hanks because this all resigned from the film when he realised what they were doing. Yeah, it was just. It I mean, it's just. I mean, the first thing is, it breaks one of the number one rules of heist movies, right? Don't remake another heist film. Don't remake one other heist film. You're essentially remaking all heist films whenever you make a new heist film. You can steal bits and bobs from other films as much as you like, as long as you put your own spin on it. So a remake of any heist movie is completely unnecessary. Yeah, but it's, it's the exact same. The the, orig, the original Lady Killers, they, they end up getting found out as not being good musicians, and they end up getting caught, and they don't get the money. It's the, They've not done any... They've they changed little bits here and there. They've modernised it a little bit to have you know explosives mm. and stuff like that, and... Uh, what not but it's the it's a carbon copy of the first fucking film it's just it's just shit it's a shame because you've got tom hanks 
a great actor. You've got J.K. Simmons, a great actor. You've got... Um, I feel like I'm missing another I mean, name. Marlon, Marlon Wayans is in it, and I actually think Marlon Wayans, you know, I know that he makes sort of dodgy kind of scary movie films, but I, I, I could totally see him doing a good job in a Coen Brothers film with the right character. I but that's not, that's not this. <laughs> you are the fat controller laughed. You are wrong. Marlon Wayans is fucking shit. Fuck Marlon Wayans. His films have been nothing but hot garbage. I don't give a fuck if he was in Requiem for a Dream. He's shit. He's not. Okay. He's crap. Don't, don't kid yourself. The thing is, he's the worst thing about this film. Where that, that, that is true. I, I tell you what. Maybe I'm trying. Maybe I'm being too kind there. Fair enough. But the problem um, is, the problem is, Joel and Ethan Coen have written the role. I feel like they've written it for Marlon Wayans. Imagine writing a role, being Joel and Ethan Corn and writing a fucking role for Marlon Wayans. I, I, and I just think you're right about that. I think you're right about that because there's a whole there's a whole bit where he has a flashback to his own mother, which could not be more of a Wayans Brothers scene if it tried. And it's like, what are we watching a Coen Brothers film or a Wayans Brothers film? Oh, it's just it's just ringing. He's having his whole just the, the liberal use of the. You know how we get. You know that same way you feel uncomfortable when uh, Quentin Tarantino is playing an actor. About mm. um, playing playing a character who's being racially abusive and insensitive because he can't pull it off. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. But Marlon Wayans is black, and he's doing a really bad job of you know trying to play like you know the kind of hood sort rat of, that he seems to be. Yeah, yeah. it's just it, it's just bar, it's barbaric, and it's like oh, let's make J.K. Simmons have fucking irritable bowel syndrome. Why? Fucking why? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's wrong. I'll tell you the worst thing about that, right, is I could see how that as a plot device could be used in the film. But the number one rule of anything like that is Chekhov's gun, right? Chekhov's rifle. If irritable bowel syndrome is part of the story, it's got to be part of the story in act one. So that when it happens in Act Three, the whole audience goes, "Ah, oh, oh, here we yeah, go." I remember that. But what they do is they actually go oh, five we're in, minutes we're before. In, we're introducing this in right now. It's like, and then they have to stop the film and explain why he's got IBS. It's like these these guys have won awards for their script writing and makes such a fundamental error. Like I do not get it. It makes me wonder if they've just been incredibly lucky with their good films that the lines are being delivered by your Francis McDormand, your Steve Buscemi, your Jeff Bridges, your. John Goodman's and your um, Javier Bardem, and they've just been incredibly lucky that those people have given performances. And the Joel, Joel and Ethan Cohen might be fucking shit because this film made me really question the fact that if if they don't have actors giving incredibly good performances, like Tom Hanks is not on top form, J.K. Simmons not on top form. Between the two of them, they've got three Oscars. Those two actors, so you can't tell yeah. me that those guys don't know what they're doing. So I I I genuinely wonder if they just strike gold with the actors that they cast in their films because Francis McDormand is almost brilliant is always brilliant in everything she's in mm-hmm. Steve Buscemi is the same and I wonder if they've just got away with basically writing Big Lebowski and having Jeff Bridges literally play himself and they've just well, it's, it's, it's interesting about that because I know, I know what you're saying what people also say about the Coen brothers is that all of these scripts right all of these like performances the Coen brothers don't let people deviate from the script so whatever line Jeff Bridges has said or Francis McDormand said Steve Buscemi John Goodman any of these that you like They've they've said exactly the line that the Coen brothers wanted them to say, so they they've written good lines and written good stories on purpose. Yeah. So they mu- see what what I found out about this in in the background is that they were originally only meant to write the script for this and they weren't going to direct it. It was going to be Barry Sonnenfeld, who's an old friend of theirs. Okay, now that makes more sense to me because he does like a lazy remake, Adam's Family or Wild Wild West. Now he backed out, which. Uh, showing the kind of good sense that deserted him when he later decided to direct Nine Lives about Kevin Spacey being magically turned into a cat. Um, but in the absence of Barry Sonnenfeld, the Coen brothers stepped in to direct. 
And I wonder if maybe there's a difference between the Coen brothers directing, writing a film that they intend to direct and have a clear idea what they're going to try and do or writing a script for someone else saying, well, you're going to do whatever you want with this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was a... But I mean, I'm, I'm trying to rationalize the fact that they just made a, a shit it film. It was just shit. It just doesn't, it didn't see, didn't have any of the style and kind of, you know, well, when yeah, I think this... of Coen brothers, I think of, Films that are cool. I think of either like your laid back the Big Lebowski's, or you think of No Country for Old Men, which is excellent, excellent film. It's just so sharp and polished. And this film starts with Tom Hanks climbing up a fucking tree trying to get a cat. It's like who fucking? I swear, I don't think they wrote this film. I'm I really hope they didn't write this because I love the Coen Brothers stuff. And this film's maybe questioned their entire filmmaking integrity because what? When have you seen in a Coen Brothers an actor climbing up a tree trying to get a cat come down and then have some slapstick comedy of the branch breaking and shit like what the fuck? When has that ever the, the, been a, a theme of? A, well, this this is this this is the thing is that the tone is so uneven because you know you do something like the Big Lebowski where all the characters are, are completely hapless, right? And then you do you know No Country for Old Men where the, where all the characters are, are you know much more gritty and and sort of hard boiled than that. They normally manage to do a script where everything's in keeping with everything else in the film, but this is all over the place. Yeah, you know, it's like on the on the one hand they're like ruthless criminals, and on you know they can't decide how hapless or not hapless the the, the, the criminals are meant to be. the 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 whole point of, of the film is a little old lady, it, like, is a pest. She's constantly talking to the police about saying, "Oh, this happened or that happened," so the police don't listen to her. So when she starts reporting like dodgy goings on to the police, they don't believe her. That's like the whole point. And in this, they can't quite decide whether the sweet old, sweet old lady is hapless or yeah. actually a lot sharper than that when she like slaps them down when, when they say something. It's like they can't decide what kind of film they're trying to make. Well, exactly. That's what, exactly what I thought towards the end of the film because she comes in and they kind of dismiss her as an old lady, which as an officer of the law, you're not allowed to do. But anyway, but they've not reinforced that enough. The same way they didn't reinforce the IBS thing. She speaks to the police officers at the start and they kind of just kind of dismiss it and throw it away. But she's shown throughout the film to be on the... She's much more on, on the, the ball, ball apart from those she's two scenes, isn't she? Right, she's beginning on the ball, and end. The entire film, and she's actually <laughs> yeah. she's actually one of the few good things about this film. She, she is she's... a very good performance, actually. That um, she deserved to be in a better film. That actress, yeah. She uh, name escapes me. I'll find her name in a second just to do her some justice. But and then the final scene, the police are like, she's talking. She's not talking as if she's insane at all, and she's talking like the lines that she's saying are. You know, she's like, I know about the money. He's like, how the fuck do you know about money? He's like, oh, well, yeah, $1.6 million. Like, how the fuck could she know about the exact precise amounts? Unless it's been published in the paper already. And, that, and then they dismiss her. And she's so dismissive. Like, she's not talking like she's crazy. She's talking like she's smart. Uh, they Irma haven't P. established Hall. that. That's, all. Her, yeah, that's yeah. her name. Yeah. Irma yeah. P. Hall, just to give her some uh, justice. Sorry, some sorry, sorry you were in such a shit film, Irma. She deserved better, for sure. Um, but yeah, and so, then it's like, oh, yeah, let her have one. But, and she's like, I might donate all the money to the... Uh, the the university and things like that. I'm like yeah you do that that would be a good idea it's like why they it's haven't established why that conversation would take place at all. <sighs> it's fundamental writing mistakes the, I mean the other th- the other problem they've got and it's very similar to when we discussed the Italian job on this podcast is they're trying to they're doing a remake but they're also trying to do other things with the film but the fact that they've got this remake to do is holding them back yeah they're trying to make a different film from the Lady Killers and at on the one hand, if they had done something that was fully in keeping with the original tone of the Lady Killers, you know, they could do that. And they've done screwball comedies that were very much in the style of screwball, screwball comedies. You, could, you wonder why you would bother, but you, you could do that. But they're trying to do this other stuff where, like, you know, Marlon Wayans is really gangster and there's a clash between him and um, J.K. Simmons's character. But that's a different film. And they keep getting tripped up because they go back to the bit, oh, well, let's play some musical instruments now, like in the original film. And 
I, I just don't get it because what the, when the Coen brothers have done stuff like this right, they've made films like the Hudsucker Proxy and the Big Lebowski and Miller's Crossing and all films like this, right, where they are clearly influenced by older styles of films, whether it's film noir, screwball comedy, whatever it is. And be, they've done a good job with it before where they say, we're not, we're not going to remake a film in that genre. We're going to kind of play with that genre, do our film in that genre. If they were to do a heist film that was a bit Ealing-esque, do you know what I mean? But not a remake of any individual Lady Killers film. That kind of oldie worldy Mississippi town they found in the casino, you know, the boat casino, that could all work. But they've they they can't do that because they have to remake the Lady Killers and they have to kind of chisel in all the plot points from Lady Killers, which are tripping them up. And it's just like someone who's supposed to be good at writing scripts, you know, if you've got a script doctor to take this script, you know, Joss Whedon or, you know, Dick Clement in the Afro and say, What's wrong with this script? They would rip it apart. They've mm-hmm. got it so wrong. The, the, I think the problem is, is that the original Lady Killers was was a U. It was a, I think it was a U, maybe a PG, but it was a film that everyone could watch. Was this film was made a fifteen? And it's, there's liberal use of the F word and N word. It doesn't fit the tone of the film yeah, at all, does it? It's not necessary, you know. It's just like neither of us are averse to a film like that, but it's not. It's in the wrong film. It's like it's like if Tarantino, if if you turn up to watch Reservoir Reservoir Dogs and it was like an alien comedy, you would wonder what the fuck he was doing. Yeah, and it, and it, but if, and if someone does an alien comedy but fills it with like swearing and violence, it it it, it jars you out of the film. It's like an accordion. It's like Jimi Hendrix doing an accordion solo. You think what? What the fuck is happening? Yeah, it needs, you know? to, it needs to be appropriate. And yeah, if they were going to do the Lady Killers in that kind of style, then they shouldn't have had the because they've. That's the problem I have with like the whole slapstick comedy of having you know him fall off a branch, which is more and probably closer to the Ealing comedy standard. Of like it kind of being more lighthearted and jovial, and you know, J.K. Simmons having um IBS and things like that. That's okay. I'm not the biggest fan of lazy toilet humor, but it's they they don't know they're they're having stuff like slapstick falling out of a tree and a cat, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the idea, the idea having, of someone being having to interrupt the you know interrupt the heist for something like that could clearly be made to work, but they just balls it up. Yeah, it's just it's just it's so rushed. It just. Oh, it's, it's making me really angry talking about this mess of a film. <laughs> it, it's just, I mean, it's all the worse for the fact that these are, you know, they have a reputation of being, you know, two of the best filmmakers around. To do a film this shit is really, is really quite a surprise. Well, they've got eight Oscars and it doesn't show. Um, Not in this film. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, isn't it strange that they, they went away after this film and they went and did No Country for Old Men, which is regarded as one of their best and won Oscars and everything. It's like... Because it's very good. <laughs> Just, I mean, maybe they. I mean, they, they did go through a bit of a, a poor patch by their standards. I think "Oh Brother, Where Out There" was quite an overrated film. Is that and the they, one on Homer's George Clooney Odyssey? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and they also did a couple of other films that weren't very successful, and "Intolerable Cruelty," "I Can Take or Leave," and all that sort of thing. So they're not infallible, but they've never done anything this shit before. <sighs> it really shocked me, and I'm, you know, I'm. You know, it's they have to take the blame for it. They are capable of doing better than this, and they and they've not. So they are they are responsible. They wrote the script, they directed it. They had potentially good actors. They have to take the full blame for for this being shite. This isn't one where you say to the studio, you know, I, you know, F. Gary Gray has to take a hit for doing the Italian job, but he then went and did some good films like Straight Out of Compton. So we'll forgive him for doing a film that the, the studio made him do. This is the Coen Brothers. They had they could have done something different, and they chose to do this. They so know better. Fuck this film. Yeah, they know better. They just- Absolutely. 
We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be talking on The Big Conversation, which this month is about the next round of films from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What thrilling blockbusters we can look forward to and when. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. The episode was recorded and edited with the help of Anchor FM, Audacity and Zencaster. Anything that sounded good was down to them, but on recent experience, anything that sounded crap might have been down to Microsoft Windows. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for another helping of nerdy chat in just a minute. See you on the other side.